Hello and welcome to Bold Leadership. I'm Colin Pooler, your co-host, and along with Cavis Reed, we're dedicated to the discussions of leadership. We have entertaining conversations on the challenges, learnings, ups and downs, and fundamentals of leadership. Our podcast involves interviews with people across the spectrum of business, public policy, community, athletics, and across a whole range of ages. So enjoy along with us, every guest and every conversation we have. Laugh a little bit, and don't worry, you don't have to be bald to enjoy it. Today's guest is Mr. Perrin Beattie, former cabinet ministers for multiple portfolios under three prime ministers, former CBC chief executive officer, and currently the chief executive officer for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. The point is, uh, is vision. You have to have a clear sense of what it is, where it is that you want to go. And that certainly applies for anybody in, in politics, but it applies for, for business as well. You need not necessarily be an expert coming in. Um, you need to know what you know and what you don't know. Uh, and where to go to, to get the advice that you need. As you're choosing your staff, as you're choosing the people to work around you, your starting point should be choose people who are smarter than you are. Put that directly. He said, if you can do the job of any of the people that you have there and your staff working with you better than they can, you have the wrong person. That's the way, if, if in our lives, both in either in business or in government or any organization we're in, if your starting point is empathy and understanding and respect, then um, you'll be surprised by what, by what the results are. Listen as we have a conversation about his journey through leadership and his journey through leading organizations through major cultural change. <laughs> Great. Sheesh. So you were, uh, you said you were just, you were just on with the Globe and Mail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I had, I had a, had a, uh, a television interview a couple of hours ago as well for, for an essence. So I had to look really good. <laughs> That's easier for you than it is for me. And for me, as well. So. <laughs> well, Perry, one of the things I got to tell you right off the bat, what I appreciate is that you've you've attempted to meet the dress code for uh, for today, or the hair code, I should put it that way. So we had, we had uh, Pamela Wallen, Senator Wallen, on. Um, uh, I caught part of that. Oh, okay. And uh, she immediately said she wasn't going to adhere to the code at all. So I thought, oh. <laughs> Which, as I recall her, um, I believe her, as I recall her, um, I believe her sister was a hairdresser. Yes. In the That's State. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She said her and her sister had uh, actually bought the, bought the salon in her town. <laughs> She's done a lot of things. I was just like, it's really remarkable. And she's a good person. Uh, she was, where was it? We were at uh, dinner for the Cantor West Foundation uh, a couple of nights ago. Pam was at that as well, so it was great to see her. Good, good. Yeah. Sort of following each other around. <laughs> well, so first of all, thank you. And um, uh, I, I know you haven't met Cavis yet, but Cavis Reed, Baron Beattie. Cavis is a real pleasure. of mine as well. Thank you so very much, sir. Uh, and you were very patient waiting for me to get my tech up and running. Oh, oh no, this, this is nothing parent in terms of uh, having to practice patience, it, whether it's <laughs> Davis and I have been complaining to each other about car issues and winter. And, and so patience, we've been practicing for, for a long time. 
<laughs> well, and I, during COVID, I've been doing a series of, of video podcasts, if you like, or at least attaching it to our website interviews with business leaders. And they go on for about 25 minutes. And we do it via Zoom. And more than once, when you have Mr. CEO running a bank or whatever, afterward, I had a call up and say, oh, I forgot to push the, uh, the record button. <laughs> and this idiot who was interviewing just forgot to push the button. <laughs> we had a very good nonetheless. Well, would you mind doing this again, please? <laughs> doing nothing else, you know. Well, it's, um, yeah, that, that, that's funny. <laughs> well, my my story, which which you know, um, my 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 wife is. Uh, everyone says she's so nice. Like her whole life, your wife is so nice, and she is. But I also have to say, we have to kind of know her outside of, you know, like I I, I see more of her. <laughs> but um, and uh, you know, she could be a bit a bit witty and sarcastic too. But but. Only in this sense, because I know she's going to listen to this. And I don't get into so tr- trouble. But I, I came home. Uh, uh, sorry, the day before yesterday. The day before yesterday, came home. Um, I went and chatted for a little bit, and she said she's going to go to her mom's uh, just to work on a um, help her work on some things. I said, okay, that's that's great. I was rather tired, so I decided I'm going to turn in early, and uh, so. I turned early. I fell asleep. I get up very early in the morning, parent, to, to go and, and, and work out before I before I go to the office. And so I, I get up the next morning, and on the counter is a is a bag of rice with a with a note on it. And uh, and, and so I, I look at the note, and it says, "I dropped my phone in the toilet." So, you know, the trick where you stick it in a bag of rice to see if you could dry yep. it out before you turn. So, yeah. And I thought, oh, okay. So I, I left it and I uh, I went to work and I went to the gym and went to work. And a few hours later, I get a, an email just saying, oh, just, just so you know, I my, my phone's not working. I don't have it with me. So if you want to reach me, maybe email me. And I thought, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and so... I don't remember if I made a mocking remark or something like that, but a little later in the day, I get a second email that said, oh, by the way, we're having meatballs and rice for supper. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what we had when I got home for supper? <laughs> there was meatballs. <laughs> so, of course, I checked to see, but no, don't worry, the bag of rice that was originally there was... This was the woman who prepared to take revenge. Just when we think we're smart enough. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought you know, I, I, I need to. Uh, I'm gonna have to be careful of this. So, it, so we had a good laugh. We had some, uh, we had some meatballs and rice. So that that was my. Uh, by the way, the phone doesn't work anymore. So I've uh, <laughs> it's sat in there for two days. It's it's. I think it's uh, it's it's, it's a another phone. It's a goner. It's a goner. And, uh, she could have you pay for the phone now. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No problem there. No problem. <laughs> as long as I get fed, it's not the rice that I'm really going to keep an eye on this. And she, this did, why. she did explain the water was, it was, it was clean water, <laughs> but it put it into the toilet at her mother's place. So it, well, you probably would have done better with that than you would have eating at my place. I'm the family cook. And, um, my line had always been, uh, with, 
people coming over, you know, you don't have to worry because it's been over two years since the last person had to rush to emergency. Uh, but I've got to be careful right now because I food poisoned myself badly a month ago. And just whack. I've never been so sick in my life. And I think anybody's going to be afraid to, to touch my food for the next while. Well, you know, the, the day since last injury sign that we often see in your manufacturing site, you have to reset it to zero. Zero days. <laughs> in zero days. <laughs> never felt so bad in my life as I did here. And uh, the bizarre thing was that Julie ate the same food as I did. She was fine. Oh. We'll be here. Okay, and, and you didn't get. <laughs> She's either tougher or there's something else going on. <laughs> then, then the, the last time, yeah, you may be right about that. The last time that we had people over was New Year's Eve. We were down in Florida. Okay. And so we had Canadian friends over for, for dinner. I cooked the dinner. Wasn't a terribly good job that I had done, but, uh, but everybody ate. Then I woke up on, uh, on New, New Year's Day feeling punk did a COVID test and I had to call everybody who had been at dinner with us the night before to inform them, you know, happy 2023. I've just tested positive for COVID. Again, neither Julie nor anybody else who was there caught it. It was just me. So it, it may be that I have a death wish. It's just a coming out in different ways. Just double check your insurance to see if it had been, if there were changes that you didn't. Um, check on that. Yeah. I have, Cavis, I, I have met, I had the opportunity to meet uh, my parents wife, Julie, uh, back in October, and lo lovely lady, so I can't imagine that she would actually do that to you. So I'm, I'm going to try to keep you in the clear for a while, Kate, uh, parents. So, but, <laughs> well, for, um, uh, for everybody who's listening to this podcast, welcome to Ball Leadership. Uh, I'm Colin Pillar, co-host uh, Cavis Reed, and, and today we have, we've got the privilege of, um, of having Perrin Beattie with us. And um, Perrin is, uh, he's got such a distinguished background. <laughs> um, it, uh, worrisome when you start to laugh when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, it, but, but it is. I mean, I, I mean, I was, uh, I don't know any, many people that, you know, been, uh, I mean, you started in, 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 um, had a manufacturing background. I'm going to try to play this back and see, and you can tell me if I got it right or if you want to make something else up. But um, uh, manufacturing background, if your family's been involved in, in manufacturing for a lot of years, and then um, elected um, elected federally and at uh, fairly young age, and you know, been in cabinet for three prime ministers, if I got this right, and um, uh, from Joe Clark to Brian Mulroney. Kept a number of portfolios, um, and uh, with with uh, Kim Campbell, and uh, and then politely, I could say you, you you left politics, sort of, or or left you, <laughs> and then um, uh, once you become the the, uh, the CEO for uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation (CBC), and um, and and then back in as an executive with uh, Manufacturers Association. And then today is the Chief Executive Officer for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, which is represents a couple hundred thousand businesses across Canada. And so 
Um, Perrin, you've seen everything from international leadership to small local le uh, business leadership to leadership in terms of organizations, and uh, and then also uh, just being having the ability to interact with so many people. I thought this would be kind of fun to have a conversation with you in a really relaxed setting. So, oh, that's what, what employers refer to as a checkered career. I find. <laughs> Proof is, if you have no discernible skills, you can't hold anyone. <laughs> That's why I haven't been holding them. <laughs> well, it, it's it's only checkered if, well, to me, I thought it was only checkered if I got pulled over and they say, hey, Mr. Pular, Cavus never really interested that because, you know, you've been involved with HR for a lot of years. You, you must You've seen this moving from job to job. Isn't that a symptom of something? It's a symptom of the, the runaway husband, runaway bride, whatever you want to call it, runaway groom. You just can't settle your feet down. What do they say down south? Down south rolling stone gathers no moss. <laughs> well, the Kavis uh, uh, are really, really interesting. Um, exploring a, a, a few things. I thought you may be able to bring some perspective on uh, your observations of leadership and then your own journeys of leadership um, over, you know, over, over, you know, all these years. And, um, and, and then perhaps, you know, if it's okay, even just talking about some of the things that you and I have had the opportunity to meet the last couple of years and um, which kind of the, the impact and legacy of leadership, I, I, I would really, um, you know, love to uh, to to explore and ask a, ask your thoughts on on a number of uh, a number of things. So, um, Cavus is is jumping really really available. It's worth what you pay for. It, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hmm. <laughs> well, uh, Cavus, you have to jack up some prices here if we're going to make this into something. <laughs> we have an honorable person with a distinguished career in front of us. Talk to us. I think we're we're gonna the ratings are gonna go through the roof. <laughs> I think I'm most intrigued when I when I look at his background and I see all the different types of leadership that that he's had. It just it's intriguing, and it, it's also one of those things where you go, I want to just listen to his journey, his leadership journey, and. How did it start for you, and what uh, uh, what prompted you or motivated you to enter into the political arena and put yourself in the proverbial fire line to help people and guide people and lead? Well, how did that story start, and do you mind taking us through that one? Davis, it started 10 years before uh, I was elected to Parliament. I was 12. It was the 1962 election. And the great son of Saskatchewan, John Diefenbaker, was running for re-election as, as prime minister. Um, I was raised in a small town called Ferguson, Ontario, and it's about an hour, it, it, it's about an hour west of Toronto Airport in southern Ontario, just north of Guelph. And in those days, Ferguson still had a, had a movie theater. It was 25 cents to go and, see a, go and see a movie. And it was before the days of the malls or late night shopping or anything. And a friend of mine and I had gone to see a movie and had come out, and it being those days, all of the stores in downtown were closed, the lights were off, except there was one one store with the lights on, and being curious 12-year-olds, 
we went and poked our head in the window to see who was in there, what was going on. Turned out the family lawyer was there and recognized me and beckoned us to come inside. Turned out to be the progressive conservative campaign headquarters for the 1962 election. And uh, our family lawyer uh, said, would you be willing to, to help out? So you could see the, the posters that I put up on lampposts, which are sort of three feet lower than anybody else's because I was only 12. <laughs> but that's what got me involved in politics. After that, uh, you know, I, I would often be asked by people to say, uh, you must have studied all of the political parties very closely and made a, a considered decision as to what to do about uh, about which party to join and so on. And my answer was, no, I happened to wander into, this was recognized by the family lawyer and, and uh, who invited me to get involved, and that's how I, how I started. It then became... A fascination for me. Other kids had normal pursuits such as playing hockey or football. Uh, I had this weird thing at 12 of being involved in interested in politics. And then uh, when I graduated from Western with a, with a BA back in 1971, I took a year off. I was going to go sow wild oats or do something else. Um, and then I was going to come back and do an MA and a PhD in Canadian history and teach, or I was going to do law as my brother had done, or I was going to enroll at the radio and television arts course at Ryerson, become a journalist. Instead, I ended up being a candidate within about six months and was elected to parliament at 22. So in any group that I'm in, I'm usually the one who is, is the least educated in terms of formal, formal education. But what a kick it's been, uh, you know, to have been a student of politics and then to be able to go down and actually participate it, to serve on the, uh, on the parliamentary committee that patriated the Constitution or to serve as a member of cabinet or to serve as a member of parliament for 21 years was a, a tremendous privilege and it was a great opportunity. And when we're talking about leadership, a great opportunity to see different styles of leadership that, that great leaders have, both in Canada and abroad, and to, to learn from them. Uh, so it's been a great education for me. In, in that arena, you had the opportunity, I think, to interact with four different prime ministers. Um, do people, what characteristic, what leadership characteristic did you see in all four of them? And do you see now in a lot of the high-profile leaders that you feel is one of the traits that you must have to lead at that at that level? I had four leaders, but only three of them became prime ministers. I think that may be unique today in having served in the cabinets of three different Canadian prime ministers. And that was interesting to see that they each had different styles of how they, they managed the cabinet. Um, but Bob Stanfield was my first leader. He had been Premier of Nova Scotia before running for the leadership of the PC party. And he's often referred to as the best Prime Minister that Canada never had. Uh, he was an outstanding person. Um, but I also watched Prime Ministers from across the floor. Um, Pierre Trudeau initially. Um, John Turner uh, as well for, for a short time. And then from outside of politics, had a chance to watch uh, Prime Minister Paul Martin and, and uh, Prime Minister Clay Chan and, and now the second Prime Minister Trudeau uh, and of course Stephen Harper. Um, the first thing is obviously you have to have a, a passion for the country. 
and you have to feel that that the commitment that you make is something um, that is worth the sacrifice that you make. We ask our prime ministers to put themselves on the line to to uh, uh, make a make a great expense in terms of the time they would have with family, the private life, and so on. Everything that they do is under a microscope, um, but they have to feel as if as, as if there's a unique contribution that they can make uh, to the country, and that this justifies all of the sacrifice they make. And I don't know any of those people I've mentioned who wouldn't say that they felt it was justified, and they felt privileged by having done that. And certainly, certainly, Cavus uh, during all the time that I was there, when I would walk as a cabinet minister, when I would walk out of the parliament buildings at night, and much of that time parliament sat at night until 11 o'clock, you'd walk out, you'd look back at the, um, at the peace tower, the parliament buildings, and a shiver would still go through down my spine. And you would realize the great people who had served in that institution, MacDonald, Laurier, and others, and you would realize how privileged you were. It would, it would give you a sense of humility because you realize you were just a tenant in those offices, but at least you, uh, you didn't own it. And at some point, the, uh, the office would go back to the people for someone else. Um, I, th I think outstanding uh, prime ministers that I've worked with have had that understanding as well, that the time that they had to make a difference was limited. They had to use it well, and uh, that they had to be driven by a passion to make a difference. Uh, I'm glad that, that you um, that, that you said that. Thank you. The the one of the things that you you said that is um, that I've been reflecting on here recently, and you touched on it again. Is the the role of being trustee when you're in leadership? You you don't own this. It's not one of your possessions to be in leadership. You are you are entrusted. You're a tenant of an office, <clears throat> but it's because you're trusted with something, whether it be to lead others, to uh, you know, there are people who rely and, and you know, rely on you and your decisions for uh, you know, for their livelihood, um, for their career satisfaction, their um, their to, to help facilitate their contribution to society, and oftentimes as we come through. Uh, our, our development, it, it's easy to forget that. And you know, we, I, we recently had a discussion with, uh, with with someone else who said, you know, for a while there I was, I thought it was leading for me. I thought I was, it was about my career. And, and then th there was a pivot that they made where they realized it was about everybody else and that success was for everybody else. And um, you, I, I know you've been very, you've thought about this because I've heard you on other things over the years and I had the privilege to either watch or, or listen. Um, would you be willing to dive a little deeper into that area um, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of being that trustee, if, if you will, um, you know, in terms of an office? Um, you know, it was in, I had a discussion after I was out of, uh, out of parliament a discussion with Keith Spicer, who used to be the editor of the Ottawa Citizen before any uh, was official languages commissioner, but he had been a chair of the CRTC as well. And uh, uh, we were talking about uh, what it's like to hold a high office and then to, to move beyond that. And uh, Keith had a very interesting expression. He said, you realize you're wearing borrowed clothes. 
and that they have to go back. Um, and I thought it was a very good way of, of describing it. You know, again, an understanding that, that something is temporary and it's a, it's a great honor that you have, but a, an enormous responsibility that goes with it as well. Um, a word that, that's fallen out of the fashion that, that, that tends to be used by religious groups much more than, than in general parlance is the word steward. Um, when you're entrusted with, uh, with an office, you're the steward of those responsibilities. And it's your job to ensure that, that, the, uh, that the responsibilities you have for others are met, met effectively and, and compassionately and with understanding. And also that ultimately, at the end of the day, that when you return the office for someone else, that it's returned intact, that the democratic institutions that, that we serve are stronger rather than weaker, for example. And uh, that the faith of the, of the citizens or the faith of the people you're serving, whether it's your own employees, your, your colleagues, uh, your customers, your, you know, the voters, that, um, that they feel as if you've kept faith with them and um, that they've been treated well in that. There was a big difference. You know, I, I worry now uh, about our, the challenges we have attracting good people into public life because of the enormous price that they pay and, and because, you know, let's look at the value proposition. You take a successful business person and you say to them, Look, you've done incredible things there in business and, and it's going well and you have the potential for building it even more. What I'd like you to do is to agree to, uh, to leave your business and to take a significant cut in pay to run for office and you'll be away from your family much of the time. Uh, you're lucky if you can look with your reputation intact. Uh, and because powers become so centralized in, in leaders' offices, even if you're a minister, it's questionable whether you'll have the ability to really run your own uh, department and really make the decisions that are necessary. Not a very attractive proposition, value proposition for somebody who has a successful life somewhere else and whom we're asking to make these, these sacrifices. Um, so that, that, you know, one of the things that we need to do is to make sure that we attract the very best people into politics and their motivation is the right motivation. When I first was elected in 1972, now, it was first of all filled with a sense of humility that, that the voters in my constituency would have elected a, a 22-year-old to represent them in, in Parliament. Um, but beyond that, every event you went to, there was a sense that people had that they revered their elected representatives. Um, they felt that they were honest, they were there to serve the public, and that, that uh, there were people who were in it for others rather than for themselves. There's been a tremendous sea change in terms of the public's view of people in public life these days. And increasingly what you hear from, from um, ordinary citizens you talk to is they're suspicious of people in public life. Uh, they think their motivation is self-interest rather than, rather than the public interest. And the level of trust and uh, regard that, that ordinary citizens have for their elected representatives has diminished enormously. I worry about that, that tremendously for a couple of reasons. The first is that it undermines the very foundation of our democracy. Uh, if people lose faith in our institutions and in the people representing them, the other is I worry about it because, because it makes it so much more difficult to attract this, the type of people that we want to have in public life.
And a, a challenge for us is how do we restore that sense of civic confidence that that we all want to achieve the same things and that, that our elected representatives uh, have the qualities that you were talking about, that they feel that sense of responsibility for the people that, that they're serving. And at the end of the day, that they never forget that, at the, that we're talking about service, not self-service, public service to, uh, to the general public. And that, that in a democracy, single most important gift that the citizenry can give to you is the ability to represent them in elected office. And you brought up uh, several very good points. It is very tough to attract people in the leadership arena, basically because we live in an instant uh, information world and everyone's uh, agenda is being pushed. And my grandfather always said, walked in a room with 100 people, 20 are not going to like it just because. And now we have a mechanism of making that dislike known internationally. How do you, uh, can you reflect on a lot of the rewards you felt as a servant leader, as a steward, uh, with the trust of thousands of people? What are some of the rewards that you have gained, uh, gained from this in terms of personal fulfillment, in terms of seeing results that can help some younger people see that civic service goes beyond just the public scrutiny there are a lot of personal growth and values that you can take from the experience Davis, let's, let me start by disabusing anybody of the notion that this was all altruism on my part you know i developed a passion for politics when i was 12. 10 years later i had the privilege of serving in the uh, in the, the government of, in the parliament of canada uh, my hobby had become my my first job, in essence. Um, this was this was a tremendous high. It was a it was a great privilege every day. Um, and I had to pinch myself about how, how lucky I was. And looking back on it and asking myself, how qualified were you to do the job? I'd had very little life experience. You know, I was nominated at at twenty one. I hadn't had to pay a mortgage. I hadn't raised a family. I hadn't held a job, and yet my the voters in my constituency had entrusted their well-being to me. It was a very humbling, but but energizing realization that 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 you had been given that trust. So uh, it was enormously rewarding. Um, then I was able to to be there, and to, I still remember the first caucus I went to. I assumed that I would be told, "Okay, twenty-two-year-old." Um, you're here to to be seen and not heard. So I was very noisy at that first conference. <laughs> the fact that uh, I'd uh, arrived and wasn't going to be quiet. Um, what I found was that Parliament is a meritocracy. Uh, my colleague's attitude was, look, you got here the same way as we did. You came in through the front door, and you're going to be judged not on the basis of how old you are, but how you perform. And uh, I genuinely felt that the system was open and that I had a chance to, to make a contribution. And, you know, one of the issues that people often have about, about party politics and about uh, people who get elected to office, well, what's the trade-off belong to, belonging to a caucus or a political party and representing your constituents and your own conscience? Uh, for me, the important thing was if, if I felt that I'd had a chance to be heard and fairly heard by everybody, and at the end of the day, 
the consensus among my colleagues was to do something else. Um, I felt comfortable going along with, with that consensus. Um, and that was, that was important. I represented a rural area, rural Canadians, rural and small town. Rural Canadians are in the minority in Canada. Most people are in the, in, in the urban areas. Um, it meant then if you had a system like this, where you had a chance to persuade others based on the force of the, the arguments you're making, it, it meant that those of us from rural Canada potentially had an influence that we never could have had if, if it was simply vote on a very narrow basis without that sort of give and take with your with your colleagues with the willingness to to compromise um and so i felt doubly privileged to be able to to work with colleagues where you could have that sort of a that sort of a, a discussion um my leader as well bob stanfield was a remarkable person and we I once persuaded him to do a paper on what i referred to as, as uh, is progressive conservative philosophy. Well, he talked, among other things, about political parties and the role that they played. And, and, and when you look at Canada, there are enormous centrifugal forces that have always threatened to tear it apart. It could be regional, it could be demographic, it could be cultural, it could be religious, it could be racial, it could be any number of, of other things that, that pull at the national fabric. One of the roles that the political parties should play is as an integrating function, to bring people together from very different backgrounds, different regions, different perspectives. And I don't have to tell, tell people in Western Canada, for example, that, uh, that Ottawa may look very different from Saskatoon as opposed to how it looks from, from Mississauga. Uh, and that solutions that are, that are, that are going to work in, in, uh, downtown Toronto aren't necessarily going to going to work in St. John's, Newfoundland or in Labrador. And that what's the glue that holds our country together is compromise, goodwill, and a willingness to, to accommodate each other, as opposed to insisting on, I want what I want to have either for my region only or for myself, and, I, and I'm not prepared to compromise. Uh, political parties and, 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 and our elected representatives, if they do their job well, um, the, the first function needs to be, how do we hold this incredible country together? How do we bring people together? And um, how do we find a way in which, which everybody's voice has a place and, and uh, is heard? So um, for me, it was fascinating. It was something I, I learned early from my colleagues in Parliament. The other thing that I learned that was shocking to me is I had... And it, again, this may sound very strange to you, but I had been born and raised, I grew up in southern Ontario. I went to high school in, in Toronto, and I, uh, my summer, first summer job was at Queen's Park in Toronto. And uh, in the year that I was taking off, I was working as an assistant to the Minister of Health at, at, at Queen's Park. So my experience of Canada had been in southern Ontario. I attended my first caucus where you had people from across the country and I discovered that people from Newfoundland or from Quebec or from, uh, or from Northern BC had an understanding of Canada that was often profoundly different from mine, but they were every bit as fiercely Canadian as I was. And I felt uh, a, sense, a sense of astonishment and then, then secondly, a sense of anger that I had been able to grow up to that point 
unaware of my own country, of, of not having understood the diversity in my own country and having simply projected my experience from Southern Ontario into the rest of the country. It's a, it's a, an ongoing problem we have in Canada that, that to an extent Southern Ontario is to Canada what the United States is to the world, that people see, see, see everybody else based on their own experience. It's not a luxury in, that people in other parts of Canada have to assume if you're in uh, Croix-Rivière and in, uh, in uh, Moose Jaw that, that the rest of the country is exactly the same as, as what you're experiencing. So, so for me, as, as a young person learning, learning about leadership, learning about Canada, learning about Parliament, this experience with my colleagues in, in Parliament was a, was a tremendous education. This is this is fantastic. I, um, uh, Perrin, that you have, and it's it's quite observable even in this conversation, but develop a great sense of empathy. Um, the, you know the, the ability to to and the desire to learn about other place, and when you you recognize just what you described, when you recognize that what your experience and the knowledge that you had up to that point because of your experiences um, were very different than someone else's a bit. You, you seem to very quickly have a desire to learn more and to embrace uh, embrace that. And we've uh, had lots of opportunities here in, in, um, in, in, recent, uh, in recent podcasts to explore the value of having this empathetic uh, characteristic, if you, if you will, this attribute. Because most people, when they're looking for, for, for leaders, that seems to be the top quality that they're looking for in terms of how they respond to their leaders. Those that are empathetic, willing to engage others that are different than them, have different ideas to come up with unique, unique tools, unique uh, innovative approaches to solve problems. And it is, is, do you see a, a shift today that would cause you concern in terms of how we do either from a from a national policy perspective or even in business where that particular attribute is 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 lacking oh we always need more of it I, i'm not sure that that i would say that they that there's a greater lack of empathy today than there, there was in the past we're more tribal than we've been in the past. Oh, yeah. Politics has become very tribal. And we tend to choose, you know, I'm on this side of the issue because that's my gang, uh, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, I've chosen my gang based on, on the issues and on my consideration about who shares the same beliefs that, that I have and, and who has worked through these issues and, and feels the same way. Um, but I think that certainly in business, there's a, a growing sense that, that you know, let, let's start, for example, how do you attract the very best people to, to your business? How do you hold them? Yeah. Uh, when I was growing up, people looked at, at joining a company for life and they stayed there the whole time. That was your goal. Now there's not that, that attachment to any one job or any one organization. Increasingly, people move around from job to job. So you're an employer, you have to ask yourself, how do I attract the very best people? If you are not empathetic, if you don't understand what, what they're looking for, then um, there's always some other employer, there's some other organization out there that would be very 
pleased to um, to be more responsive than, than you are. So there's a powerful incentive there. The same way in, in, in politics, I think there's no question that we're frustrated when we believe that government isn't listening to us. Um, I was saying to somebody the other day, I'm, you know, there are people in Canada who hate the government. They'll always be with us. I worry about that. I hope that that number, that that percentage doesn't grow. But I am even more worried about people who believe their government hates them. Oh, yeah. and, and that's where it becomes particularly dangerous because at that point, people start to opt out of the political system and they believe that our democratic system isn't functioning and they start to look at, at, at alternatives. It is critical that our elected leaders make it clear that their first, their first function is service that they um, that when they're elected the campaign is over and they're there to serve everybody uh, not just the people who voted for them and that that for those of us who have the privilege of, of serving in the house of commons that we are a member of a very privileged club and that we need to leave the institution stronger than we found it rather than rather than diminishing it and, and undermining it some, you know, unfortunately, there are too many examples we can all think of where, where that's not the case, where that's not the motivation or where that's not what happens. And as a result, then people drift away from, from their belief in our fundamental institutions. They drift away from their civic engagement with one another. We become more tribal. We become polarized and, and we see people who disagree with us as enemies rather than as opponents. And we believe that they're evil rather than mistaken. And there's a big difference between those concepts. Um, so empathy is a, is a critical part. I, I was at a um, Canada West Foundation dinner a couple of nights ago. And uh, I was walking back with um, Ed Fast, Member of Parliament from British Columbia. I didn't have the privilege of serving with Ed in Parliament. He's there now. Uh, but we had an interesting conversation. Um, he said, he said to me something that made a lot of sense. He said, to me, the single most important element in choosing a leader or choosing a, a, an elected representative is character. Um, and he is, I believe he's absolutely correct in that. So, and I think the public is right when they say, what I'm looking for is, does this person who's a candidate or who's a suggested leader have empathy? I think it's another word for character. And um, it makes a whole lot of sense. Parliament can last for four years between elections. Did anybody anticipate, say, four years ago that Russia would be invading Ukraine and that we would be in the sort of dramatically changed world that we're in? Did people anticipate COVID before we saw those first pictures coming out of, uh, coming out of China and northern Italy? So um, often the issues that... that political parties and candidates fight about at election time aren't in fact the great issues that our elected leaders have to deal with. And uh, I don't think the voters are at all wrong in saying it's not necessarily the issue that, that, that these guys are squabbling about that, that I'm paying attention to. I'm interested in the character of the people I'm electing and whether or not they have the capacity to deal effectively with issues that we can't anticipate today 
and with crises that we can't anticipate, which uh, which will go to the to the very survival of people and to the survival of nations. Um, so empathy, character uh, are the starting point. I feel more important than experience or or uh, even perhaps intellect. I don't know who said it, but the quote uh, I think was attributed to Dr. King is be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is who you really are. While your reputation is merely what people think of you. And as you're, exactly. as you're speaking, I, 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 we are in a society right now. I don't, I can't speak for anywhere except the U.S. and Canada, where you have to choose a side. Your comment by people are going to put you on a side. They put you in a box. They isolate you. You're X because you said this or you think this. I think we've had uh, less tolerance for difference and diverse thinking and for different thinking, for being challenged and having our beliefs challenged and, and having very good uh, productive discourse about social issues and politics, etc. As a leader, how do we try to put this toothpaste back in the tube? Because I think it is a major threat to democracy that we can't have challenging discourse and have beliefs that are different than others. And that's, to me, one of the main premises of a democracy is bringing diversity into play and having a heterogeneous society versus a homogenous society. If so, I, I don't think there's a, a quick answer, but it starts with how we treat one another. Um, you know, what, what, do you or I, what do you or I look for from other people more than this? We want to be respected. That is, we, we want people to look at us and say, you know, as a human being, as a citizen, you have a right to your point of view, and you have a right to have me listen to your point of view and to, and to fairly consider it. That's that's what I would ask, and I think that's what I, what what others would ask, including those who've been who've been disenfranchised over the years. You look at, at Indigenous Canadians who who have been left out of the system in so many instances. What's the starting point? It's to treat people with respect and to say you you have a voice. It counts and. Um, and your your opinion is as good and as important as mine. And um, so the starting point is how we treat one another. I, one of the things I always admired, you know, I look at the at, at political leaders I've known and the ones I admire most. Um, Robert Stanfield was my first was my first leader, and and he remains my political hero. There was nothing that Stanfield ever said in private that you would have been ashamed of if he had said it in public. Um, he ran out of a sense of duty. He'd been through some of the successful business, uh, successful business family. There, he didn't have any need to run, and he didn't feel that the country would fall apart if he didn't become prime minister. Nor did he feel that he would fall apart if he didn't become prime minister. But he felt he had a duty of service. He saw it in those terms. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about what he could get out of it. It was what he could put into it, and. That was, for me as a, as a young person, was inspirational to have somebody like that as my leader. Um, let me take another example. Peter Lougheed, who uh, from Alberta, the Premier of Alberta, whom you know, I got, got to know fairly well, 
during the time that we were both in public life, and to admire enormously. Um, the thing that stood out about him and about Bill Davis, who was the Premier of Ontario, was the decency, the innate decency, the fact that they treated others with respect. And even at the height of the National Energy Program, where where they, you know, Premier Lougheed was at loggerheads with Prime Minister Trudeau uh, on an issue that, that, that had so divided Canada, and uh, where, you know, went to the very core of Premier Lougheed's beliefs, he was never... It was never, the debate was never ad hominem. It was never, um, Mr. Trudeau is evil. It was, you know, profoundly disagree with these policies that he's brought down. Peter Law, he'd always distinguished between an enemy and an opponent. And he believed that what he was dealing with was an opponent. And he always distinguished between believing that people on the other side were evil he believed that they were wrong, and there's a there's a, a major distinction. <laughs> That's a major distinction. If you want to rebuild, call in the sense of, uh, of of civic engagement, you start by treating other people with with respect. But let me let me give you an example from my my own experience. Um, it's <laughs> the the element of my political career that's become best known recently is that I was the father of the Emergencies Act, which was invoked for the first time uh, a year ago uh, by the current federal by the current federal government. Did anybody give you a cigar for that? Positive and negative. But my experience was with the War Measures Act which was the predecessor bill, which had been introduced in, in World War I, uh, which is not a time when, in the middle of a war, when you look at, well, what about the rights of, of, of people here? It's how do you increase the power of the, of the state? And uh, it was patterned on a British bill. It was used in World War I to uh, uh, incarcerate people who were considered enemy aliens, among other things. Uh, it was used in World War II to incarcerate the Japanese. It was used against the Ukrainians as well uh, and others. Uh, again, it, would, it had been used in peacetime only twice in World War I, World War II. And then uh, Mr. Trudeau Sr. invoked it in the October 1970 crisis. And he did it in response to the uh, kidnapping by the Front de Liberation de Quebec of, uh, Pierre, Le, of Pierre Laporte, who was murdered by his kidnappers. He was a, the Quebec labor minister. And the kidnapping of James Cross, who was the British trade commissioner in Montreal. And uh, this was shocking. There had only been one other political assassination in the history of Canada. Darcy McGee had been uh, one of the fathers of Confederation who was shot a few blocks from where I am on the Spark Street Mall coming home one night. So shocking to as you'd imagine to people to find that, the, that there'd been a political assassination. Mr. Trudeau invoked this nuclear device of the, uh, of the War Measures Act, which suspended civil liberties across Canada, but particularly in Quebec, where you had hundreds of people who were swept up in the dark of night, who were held without habeas corpus, without the right to see a lawyer or to go before the courts or, or any else and held without those basic rights that we would expect as a, uh, as a citizen. Um, it, and the rights of people right across the country were suspended. 
So you had the mayor of, uh, of Vancouver, uh, Tom Campbell, talking about using the War Measures Act, that he wanted to use it to clear the hippies out of Gastown. <laughs> the, uh, the RCMP uh, came into Guelph, Ontario, you know, beside my hometown of Fergus, uh, because the Guelph student newspaper had done stupid type of thing that, that student newspapers tend to do, which I can say having having worked for one, I was in university, they had, they had reprinted the FLQ manifesto. But this was in Guelph, in English, for student population, and there was no threat to the established order there. Uh, but the FLQ manifesto had been banned. The police came in and seized the, the uh, printing place. The, the newspaper. So everybody's civil liberties have been suspended. The commitment had been made to to take this nuclear device, and ultimately, the the killers of Pierre Laporte, the kidnappers of James Cross, were found not through the War Measures Act. Nobody was ultimately convicted of a crime under the War Measures Act. They were found through ordinary police methods and dealt with through ordinary statutes. Um, this had been seared into my conscience. I had supported and participated in a demonstration. I was president of the student uh, PCs in, in, at Western, participated in a, um, in a um, uh, demonstration in support of Mr. Trudeau and the government of the day because Canadians were closing ranks at times of, of, of crisis. Um, after this was all over, we, we all went back to look and say, was there, in fact, the justification for suspending people's civil liberties across the country. Were we right and, and just trusting implicitly the government that they were doing the, the right thing? And was the War Measures Act the appropriate piece of legislation? So um, we were committed to replacing that with modern emergencies legislation that, that recognized that there could be instances where the government would need to operate very quickly to affect people's rights. For example, the, the example that my officials used with me was if there were a, um, an earthquake in the lower mainland of British Columbia that was so serious that, that local governments couldn't deal with it, including the government of, of BC, then the federal government might have to step in, would have to have the power to commandeer private property, to suspend people's rights of mobility and so on, to save people's lives. But there are different types of crises that could be limited geographically and the government would need to act quickly, but then as a quid pro quo for giving them those extraordinary powers, how could you build in checks and balances that would protect people's basic rights and would ensure that Parliament would do its would perform its job of, of oversight and scrutiny and accountability, that where there's enormous power given to the executive, that there has to be enormous special accountability as well. So this was an extremely contentious bill. I was um, an Anglophone from Southern Ontario carrying a bill that was particularly contentious in Quebec because of the experience of the, of the uh, War Measures Act and was terribly worried that this was going to, that if it wasn't handled right, it would divide Canadians instead of uniting them. So the approach that we took, that, that I took in Parliament was to say, this is the bill that represents our best effort to, to meet the needs of the day. But uh, we're going to take our time. We deliberately brought it in when there was no crisis so that people weren't going to be panicked. They're able to, to think dispassionately about the issues involved. Uh, we said, we'll take the time to make sure everybody is heard and that we'll invite people like the people representing um, the Japanese community 
uh, the Japanese Canadians who'd been incarcerated to hear, to hear from them. And that, that we would look at, at making changes to the bill where improvements could be made. I believe I saw one thing that said that we had accepted, I think, over 70 amendments from the NDP alone. Um, but the, the approach was, I instructed my officials that, that we would look at any proposed amendment to the bill, and unless we had a compelling reason why an amendment couldn't be accepted, we would accept it. That, there, that the onus would be on us to explain why an amendment would make things worse as opposed to better. Otherwise, we would accept the uh, the proposed amendment. So, so, scores and scores of amendments. Finally, when the when the bill was presented to the House for third reading, every single member of the House of Commons voted for the bill. It was unanimous. So, it is possible, even you know. All we have to do is to look back at the newspapers from that day. Parliament wasn't a blissful place where it was where everybody got along well, everything was rosy. Uh, this wasn't the golden age of, of, of friendship in Parliament. But but the experience I had was you treat people with respect, you give them the opportunity to be fairly heard, and adults will respond as adults, they'll respond in kind. That's the way if, if in our lives, both in either in business or in government or any organization we're in, if your starting point is empathy and understanding and respect, then um, you'll be surprised by what, by what the results are. Do I believe that we can overcome the, the polarization we see in society and the division that, that exists not just in Canada, but in every Western democracy? Can we we got a quick fix that will that will correct that. No, we don't. But it won't be corrected unless we start, and it won't be corrected unless somebody's prepared to start with goodwill and with empathy. Thank you for joining us for part one of our episode with Mr. Perrin Beatty. Please join us for part two as we continue our discussion.